Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you've ever wondered what the stars of the cultural scene got up to in the long months of lockdown, we all got a peek behind the curtain at home with the award-winning actor Mandy Patinkin. Dad, what was that song from that you were just singing? Uh, you're adorable. Isn't that what it's called? He became a social media sensation as Lockdown Dad with irreverent viral videos of days holed up with his family in upstate New York. Wow, that's kind of in tune, It's not the only time the star has made waves online. He's been a prominent anti-Trump campaigner and embraced the cause of refugees neglected by Western democracies. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, do actors make good activists? Mandy Patinkin is a prime example of a celebrity who's embraced these two prime parts with equal gusto. In a Broadway career across four decades, he's earned plaudits for performances including Che in Evita and as the original protagonist in Sunday in the Park with George, the Stephen Sondheim musical based on the life of the artist Georges Seurat. How you have to finish the hat How you watch the rest of the world from a window While you finish the hat Mapping out a sky For those of us who prefer sofa culture to the hard seats of the stalls, he's Saul Berenson, tormented CIA man in TV's Homeland. You have taught an entire generation to live with one foot in the afterlife. We do what is necessary to win back our homeland. But these days, the actor is as famous for his work as an ambassador for the International Rescue Committee. In that role, he's travelled the world, meeting people fleeing violence and persecution. And so now we need to get America to be kind to your family and other families who who need to. And I don't want just for me. I need for all of refugees. For all all All, refugees? All of refugees, they they need that night. They do. Yes. I certainly agree. Actor, campaigner, Mandy Patinkin, welcome to The Economist Asks. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. You are a rare beast in your industry. I think you're a truly multidiscipline star with a Tony under your belt or possibly on a wall somewhere behind you. Well loved across the generations for your part in the Princess Bride movie. And most recently and most frequently, I have to say on my TV screen, you've starred as the CIA director Saul Berenson in Homeland on TV. So where's the natural home? Is it in front of the camera or is it the stage? Well, you are sitting with me in my home. (laughs) This is my natural home, a cabin in the woods. 
But if you push come to shove me, I would say my home is on the stage. Okay, so we've got you on the stage, acting or singing? Without a doubt, again, singing. It's easier, and it's because in singing, the composer of the music, not the lyric, gives you the literal time or the heartbeat. Each note is a quarter note or a half note or a full note or a rest. And that is sort of the heartbeat. When you're acting, you don't have that musical heartbeat score to guide you, whether you want to go fast or slow or loud or soft, but there is that extra hand there. And in acting, you have to write the score yourself. And you've said that you can't play a role, but you need a connection to the character to want to do it. So where do you look for it? Do you look in the ideas? Do you look in the story? And if the character is not particularly attractive, where do you find connection in a deplorable character, for instance? I either connect through examples in my life that I've lived and experienced. I love doing research uh, and meeting the real people, talking to them, getting their heartbeat, hearing the stories from the horse's mouth. Then I realize if I'm playing you and you've just told me all the events, there's nothing to act. All I have to do is repeat what you've told me and be there and, and use my imagination. And that is the place I live in more than reality. My home, when you asked me earlier, my real home is my imagination. And when it comes to playing someone of a darker nature, unfortunately, there are far too many examples in the world we live in at the present and in the past to feed off of. Come on, there's something attractive about playing a bad guy, right? Well, there's nothing attractive about it to me, although my job is to make you like me and to make him... Uh, charismatic. So for me, fascists and dictators are the villains that I would portray, and I would mine their charismatic, humorous, human side to show the audience how dangerous it is that they're just like the guy next door, carrying within their grasp the end of civilization as we may know it. And that brings us to another role that you've embraced, and that is activist. Now, how has that actor-to-activist bridge informed your career, your outlook, and also what you choose to spend time on? Well, it's been the most unexpected and greatest privilege of my life and my career. I never thought of being an activist. I trained to be a classical actor, and that's all I uh, wanted to do. And then events took place in the world that made me say, I need to stand up for this. Uh, The most recent uh, event that shifted our existence, I was in Berlin, it was 2015. I was shooting, I believe, the fifth season of Homeland. Uh, 125,000 refugees were trying to get across the Balkan route to make it to Germany for a better life, a new beginning, uh, safety. I was just beginning a six-month ride in Homeland, which was a fictional world where the first episode of of that fifth season took place in a Syrian refugee camp. At the same time, these 125,000 people in reality were desperately racing for their lives. And I'd see these photographs, the families, the children holding hands, making these endless treks. And I saw my family. I saw my grandparents, my ancestors fleeing the pogroms of Russia and Poland. And the moment I finished the last shot of Homeland, I was on the first plane with the International Rescue Committee to Lesvos, Greece, 
where I began a journey of being able to work with the IRC and trying to bring awareness to the refugee crisis, which is only growing every day all over the world. And when you spend time with these individuals who have literally been living through hell, losing their loved ones in front of their eyes, it just teaches you how to live and how to be strong. And they change my life every day. When I'm having a bad day, I close my eyes and think about these folks. And I realize how lucky I am. And with that said, the burden is so often taken by developing countries that have less means, but they're surrounding the crisis zones and they take in the brunt of the community. Countries like the UK and the United States, developed countries, we need to do more. In 2021, the number of forcibly displaced people rose to 82.4 million, the highest on record around the world. The year also marked the 70th anniversary of the UN Refugee Convention. I think we're going to come to a bit of a squeeze on this question because it's one thing to say something should be done, but you could see lots of different political systems finding the answer difficult. So where does it go? Well, clearly, we all know from the Polish-Belarus border what's happened there. We know Afghanistan and the difficulties we had, even America, who had a relationship with so many Afghans and wasn't able to get them out, and we've left so many behind. What happens on the Mexico border in the past administration with America, shutting the doors, the EU shutting the doors. So clearly, there's a problem accepting the responsibility to your fellow human being to give them refuge, a new home, safety, asylum. This is a crime, simply a crime against humanity. My grandfather used to say in Yiddish, which means the wheel is always turning. And if you're on top, you will one day be at the bottom. And when you knock on someone's door, if you didn't open it for your fellow human being, there is no right reason for you to expect them to open it for you. So that quality of ignoring human need to the most vulnerable population on the planet is not acceptable. We have to do better. The current Biden administration has brought up the quota for refugee status, which means resettlement in the United States, to 125,000, which is the best we've had. It needs to be greater. You could say, well, this is a recipe for political failure. Countries simply cannot say we will take an unlimited amount of refugees if their populations have a threshold where they don't accept that. Now, you can argue about the threshold and as you point out, the Biden administration, you can stretch it upwards. You can argue that the EU overall should do more. But other than wagging the finger, I, I, I don't quite understand why you think when you say the political will is not there. It sounds like you're scolding. If you were a politician, would you think the same way? Yes, I would. And I am scolding. And put it in this context. It's your child that's being left behind, lost, starved to death, turned back to a violent environment, whether it be from conflict, climate change, or COVID, where there is no care and no responsibility, no income, no means, and your child dies in front of your eyes. Then you'd lift a political hand if you were in a proper position. But most people are not in that position. That's exactly what I mean. I mean, that is an interesting philosophical experiment, but it's not the way that decisions are made. I'm referring to elected officials. I'm referring to individuals that you as the citizens of your country have voted for to elect to take care of both your community and I hope your moral commitment to humanity all over the world. 
And it is your job to vote for the people that you feel will stand up for the moral concerns of humanity. And those are the people you should elect to office, not people who will squander human life and call it collateral damage. Come along with me and the International Rescue Committee to these refugee camps and look at these families who have literally lost everything in a garbage bag, in a dinghy, and watch the people fall off that small dinghy that has 300 people and should have 37 in it, and they drown in the sea over and over again. I'd like to see how how you as the politician or you as the person speaking as the head of your country can say, I can take that, I can go out to the sea and watch that human destruction over and over again. Given your passion and commitment on the subject, I have a question that, that might might seem a bit annoying, but do you see any limits to celebrity activism? I feel there is no limit. If I'm trying to save a human life, I'm a human being, I'm an American, I'm a Jew. In the Torah, uh, save one life, it's as though you have saved the entire world. Destroy a life, it is as though you have destroyed the entire world. These are tenets which I try to live by. I'm very sensitive to the fact that, oh, here comes another actor, here comes another Hollywood, whatever, you know, and so you, you get turned off. You're going to turn me off because of that, then you're going to turn me off. I'm speaking about my heart. I'm not speaking to get my career forwarded by these efforts. I care more about this than I care about any job that I've been privileged to have. How important is your Jewish identity? My Jewishness defines how I grew up. I boil it down to a Yiddish word, I believe, rachmonis, which means compassion and forgiveness. In my later years of life, I learned that forgiveness is something I should back off on a little bit because human beings make mistakes. And indeed they do. And Stephen Sondheim, you know, people make mistakes. Fathers, mothers, people make mistakes. Holding to their own, thinking they're alone. Honor their mistakes. Everybody makes one another's terrible mistakes. And it goes on. We got an insight into life in a Jewish household over the past year when you reached even dizzier heights of social media prominence in the lockdowns. You and your wife, Catherine, and the help of, of Gideon, your son, posted videos of your daily life. Well, it turns out people like watching other people's daily lives, particularly perhaps at the Tinkin household, where you bicker, you discuss the pros and cons of everything from global affairs to gluten, and you try to make IKEA furniture together, which may have been your greatest ever practical challenge after however many years <laughs> in the theatre. <laughs> What's it like? Come on then, invite us in for a moment. I got to tell you, it, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so I'm innocent. Come on. I'm telling you, it started, we were right out there on the road. It was at the beginning of COVID. My son Gideon came back. He was worried about his mom and dad that he should do the grocery shopping and everything because we're in our 60s and 70s. Our anniversary, our 43rd or 42nd anniversary was the day before. And we had an argument and he pulls out his little cell phone because he would take like family archive stuff. And oh, well, we had an argument about our anniversary and we talked about it. And he says, you know, that was really fun. Can I put that on, on, on your social media? That was the initial effort. And that first one that he put out there of our having an argument went nuts. And I just, I just thought, oh, my God, partly it was the pandemic. Everyone's terrified, locked up. And, and here are these two old farts. And it made people laugh a little bit. And then we quickly realized, God, we're making people laugh. And it just grows and grows and grows. It morphed into other areas about getting out the vote for the election, Black Lives Matter, and, and, and the beat goes on. But also, I would say, 
What we took to heart deeply was that we were entertainers, all three of us, my wife, myself, and my son, and the privilege of making people smile in this insane time. They've been praised for being thoroughly modern, and they're very popular with younger views. Why do you think that showing the less glamorous side of celebrity is such a pull across the generations? Well, I think celebrity is horseshit unless you use it for the benefit of others, period. And so we had a real situation. We had an individual who was the head of our country who has been proven to be irresponsible that we needed to get out of office. We needed to get out the vote. Ruth Messenger said at one point early on during the election, nobody's hitting the young vote. Nobody's hitting the young constituency and getting the youngsters to get their parents a vote. That next morning, Gideon came in and said, listen, there's a thing called TikTok, and we're going to ask you to do some things that you're going to be completely uncomfortable doing, but I guarantee you it is going to be helpful to getting young people engaged. Well, we did the dumbest things. I couldn't believe what they were asking us to do. And within a very short time, there were a million subscribers to the TikTok site. And then we found later through research that they were able to do that these kids talked to their parents who hadn't registered to vote. They got people to vote on and on and on. And I don't know how to work the social media. I don't know how to upload, unload, outload, download anything. I just know how to answer Gideon's questions. And they had the wisdom to know, let's get the kids involved because they're the future and they're the ones that are gonna run the ship. Let's put you back on stage. In November, the composer and librettist Stephen Sondheim died. You said he was an elemental and irreplaceable part of your career. You started in the role of George in his musical Sunday in the Park with George. How was working on a Sondheim production different from just working on another great Broadway show? I'd say the key to the difference that you're asking about was the difference between working with a gifted person and a genius. And a genius opens the doors to everyone else's thoughts and opinions, asks questions. These kinds of gestures change the ball game forever. You know, I was thinking back across the time that I'd seen and loved, and I'd make some arguments with colleagues. I mean, Sunday in the Park with George, I'm taking to my desert island. You can come. Can we bring Jake Gyllenhaal for a different interpretation? How do you feel about that? Absolutely. I I never got to see it when I was in it. And uh, because my job was doing it and living it. So when Jake did it, I went to see him and I was a basket case. I, I just tried not to cry out loud throughout the entire performance. I went backstage to hold him and his co-star in my arms and just thank them. It was very emotional. And And I wanted to say one other thing about Steve that can relate to all of us. What he did similar to Shakespeare, in my opinion, is he turned darkness into light. He had a relationship with his mother that he spoke about freely. His mother on her deathbed said to him, you are my single greatest regret in life. And he was devastated by it. But as opposed to a double death and him killing him, he made the canvas of his life, the battlefield, to find light in that darkness. He wrote more beautifully for women and about women than almost any other individual in the genre of musical theater and maybe many male writers. And if I could write, I would have written every word he said. And why I chose to sing his stuff is he wrote everything I wished for. And people like him, 
They write down what they wish for themselves and for the world to be there forever. And in too many cases, those wishes have never been realized for themselves, but they've left them for the rest of us. And that is the true gift of the genius, the gift of what they've left behind. And there's a lot of interest in Sondheim, again, even predating his uh, death just before Christmas Follies was at the London National Theatre a couple of years ago. There was this gender-switching company on Broadway last year. Uh, Merrily, we were along, was, was here a few years ago in a Maria Friedman production. So do you think that some of these plays date and some don't? I mean, there is certainly something of an era about Sondheim as well as the universalism. Are there, are there moments or plays that you think probably won't come back? I don't for this reason. I think there's a difference between historical and classical. Historical for me is acid rock. It's a time of my time, and it wasn't of interest to me to hear it again as my time grew on. To me, what is classical? Like a child says, Mommy, could you read it to me again? Mommy, Daddy, could you read me the story again? Could you read it again? Again and again and again. There's something about it that's innate, that's instinctual, that's just you can't even put words to it, that you want to visit again and again and again. Because I think what that something is, is it's something that teaches you about being alive. Literally, one of my favorite songs Steve ever wrote, Being Alive, How to Be Alive. You're only alive for a moment in this world. And, and you don't want to waste it. And they will always be there, whether they're by Shakespeare or Sondheim or Ibsen or Chekhov. Those ideas that live forever because we need to hear them forever versus the primal screams that we need to get out at a certain time, a certain point in our age, and maybe in a room that's locked so nobody hears them. Listen, before we let you go, Mandy, we started the conversation talking about the breadth of your career in its fourth decade. Part or performance you're still yearning to do, or perhaps you might like to revisit? Wow. I I don't know yet. People say, Mandy, you should play Lear. You should play Lear. I'd like to try Lear, try my hand at Lear. I played Prospero in The Tempest. I certainly would like to revisit that. And have you got over your stage fright yet? I was really surprised to read somewhere that you still had tickles of stage fright. I worry only when I'm not terrified. <laughs> and my wife says, you could put a bottle of champagne in my hands and it would chill it in seconds before I walk on stage. A lot of people have come to me, you know, people who are politicians, speakers, people who are run businesses have to make speeches. I, I have such stage fright. I shake when I'm in front of people. I have to make a talk. What do I do? What do I do? And my only advice is, Don't run away from it. Be there. Let your upper lip sweat. Let your legs shake and your hands shake. Let your mouth dry out. Any human being that doesn't lean into you when you're scared is not a human being you want to be listening to you. The more frightened you are, they just get quiet and they move into you and they sort of hold you. And let them take care of you and be however you are. It's human. It's endearing. It's universal. It's how we all are. Mandy Patekin, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we'd love to know what you think. Is there a Sondheim song that's the tune to your life? I'm going to nominate the theme tune from Merrily. It's quite midlife, but I love it. How can you miss it? Isn't it clear? How can you let it slip out of gear? Write to us. 
podcast at economist.com or you can tweet us at economist pods and as a new year of arts and culture await i'm taking my cue on what to read watch and listen to from the economist's great books and arts team What's the secret behind the success of the art pop band The Residence, and why is eco horror 2022's goriest cinematic trend? Find out on our website, and why not become a subscriber while you're there? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com/podcastoffer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is the Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.